Hello, church. Thank you for joining our ABF online service. Well, as you know, church is much more than a service. It's a community of believers doing life together. Well, our heart in providing these online videos is to be a supplement so that it can help you grow in your walk with the Lord when you're unable to attend. But we sure would love to see you here at ABF on a Sunday morning. Well, a few things that I wanted to let you know about. First, you can text 97,000 and let us know any of your confidential prayer requests. Man, we consider it a privilege to walk beside you and pray with you when things are going on in your life. So please do reach out and let us know how we can be supporting you in prayer. Well, um, there are a lot of things going on at ABF, and you can learn all about the weekly happenings and the special events going on here on our website at agorabible.org. So take a look at that and know what's going on in the community. Well, our ABF community, it is only funded from sweet people like yourself that give generously. So man, we would encourage you um, to go on our website and use the Give tab to make a donation. That would be so wonderful. And just the ongoing ministries here at ABF. Well, this is the time in our service where we get ready to hear from God and see what he wants to speak into our lives right now. So Listen up. Here is God's Word. All right. Well, thank you, Adrian, and uh, good to be with you online this week. And uh, thank you for making the pivot with us. Just a reminder, if you're already this week, you're like, wait a second, where's the, the worship? Uh, just know that there's in our YouTube channel, there's over a hundred different uh, worship services that if you ever feel the need to uh, go back, spend some time uh, going through some of those and being blessed by the worship, thankful for Chad and Erica doing uh, that for such a, a long period of time, but still an encouragement for uh, many that have the ability to do this, to, to come back, to be with us in person uh, for worship each week on uh, Sunday mornings at 9 or 10.45. Well, Welcome to a beginning of a new series. We're starting a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you're newer to uh, ABF, newer to uh, even these online services, you might wonder, well, why is it that you systematically work through really relatively long books of the Bible? I want to uh, give a little explanation of it. Really, the, the heart behind it is because of what we believe about this book. You see, if we actually believe that this is just, you know, a collection of uh, ancient helpful writings that you would be tempted to, to mix it together with some other ideas and studies and, and my thoughts on things. But here's the thing. If it actually is what it claims to be, which is the actual word of the creator God, the one that spoke you into existence, the one that sustained your life, the one that causes your heart to be beating at this very moment and your lungs to be sucking in oxygen. If it is actually his word to us, written through man as his instrument, if that's what it actually is, it should get complete 
attention and focus, and we should be starved for more of it. And so my question for you, even as we're starting this week, is what do you believe about the Word of God? What do you, what do you believe? Is it just ancient writings, a collection of stuff that's maybe beneficial for some uh, life lessons, or is it actually God writing a book. We believe God wrote a book and we believe it speaks to us still today and it's so relevant. Our life should align with what we believe about this book. Let me pray before we start this study. Lord Jesus, we do gather around this word every single week because we believe it brings life. We believe that it speaks directly to us as it says it cuts straight to the morrow. It addresses things that are going on in our day. It gives the encouragement needed. And it gives the rebuke needed. It gives all the things. It is life that you've provided an amazing gift for us, God. As we start this new study in Corinthians, God, I ask that we'd be attentive to listen to you. What do you have for us, God? We invite that you'd speak to us even in these moments now. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, it's nice as we're starting, it's kind of the way that Paul writes his letters, as he starts here in 1 Corinthians with some important facts. First off, who's writing? I've already alluded to that. And then secondly, who he's writing to. So we're going to get right into it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with the introduction. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother's Sosthenes. All right, we'll stop there. First, it's the introduction of our author, Paul. If you spend any amount of time uh, around church world, you're familiar with Paul himself. He had formerly known as a Saul. He was a, a Jewish zealot and a persecutor of Christians, but then was converted after an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So he has this complete turnaround, goes from opposing the, the movement of Christ in the, the early church to all of a sudden getting behind it and being its biggest proponent based on an encounter with Jesus Christ. You see, once you cross paths with Jesus, your life is never the same. And that's for sure the case with Paul. He introduces himself. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I like that you see even in his introduction that he's very aware of his part in all of this, called by the will of God. Anyone that's been rescued from their sin and their past and their shortcomings realizes that it really has, the rescue really has nothing to do with them. It all had to do with God reaching out, his call into their life, him reaching out to them for rescue. Called, it's kind of a, a term seen throughout scripture. I think it's one that can seem super spiritual and can kind of seem intimidating. You're like, well, he had a, a calling on his life. What would that be like? But I think in a general sense, every single one of us has a call on our life. In fact, Jesus was very clear what that calling was before he left. He said, man, go and make disciples. What, just for the sake of disciples or people to follow Jesus? No, for the sake of rescue. People were desperate for rescue and he called us to be the ones throwing the line of rescue to the world around us. 
I think the book of Romans makes it really clear how this is intended to work. Let me read to you Romans 10, 9 through 14. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Eternal judgment. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you believe in your heart, you confess it with your mouth, the outcome of that is rescue. For scripture said, everyone says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may have heard this in context before. Just This is a clear-cut explanation of the gospel message. It's by simple faith, placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and his finished work on the cross for your salvation. That is the rescue. But a lot of times we start, stop in that section of scripture and forget how it's intended to work. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So to me, it's fairly simple. Our one hope for rescue, our one potential to have our eternities redirected is by putting our belief and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on that cruel Roman cross. But how is someone able to believe if they've never heard? That's what our text is explaining. We are called to be the ones that speak of the rescue that's offered in Jesus Christ. And so what is our calling? We can't hide behind, well, I don't really know what my calling is and it's, it's vague and it's somewhere out there. I'm trying to figure that out. No, it's not vague and it's not uh, something floating out there in the, in the universe. It's something that each one of us is specifically called to. We're called to share the good news. And you're missing out on the purpose of your life if you're not participating in that. Think about it for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? It, without a doubt, came because somebody actually spoke about him to you. Think about it. In my, in my story, it started and you followed the, the uh, chain back. It started with a Billy Graham crusade where my grandmother went and she heard the proclamation of Jesus and the rescue that he offers. She adopted that through faith, came home, shared it with her husband, shared it with her kids. My mom came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And my dad has a similar testimony of coming to Christ. Both of them were a part of sharing the message then with me. I believe because of that. It had to be verbalized in order for me to adopt it for you. Who was it? Who, who would you say? Say that name even out loud in this moment. But think about it for a second. My question for us here uh, as we're going through this, who would say your name in that description? Who would actually say your name when they're asked that question? Who pointed you to Jesus Christ? Who could actually say your name? 
really missing out on your design and God's plan for your life if no one can use your name in that description. The term used here for Paul, he describes himself as an apostle, which means one who is sent. It's a description that was often used of the original 12 disciples that Jesus handpicked, invested into, and then gave divine authority to found and form the church after he left. It's the 11 uh, after Judas's betrayal, but then we have the addition of Paul, who is also entrusted to be the one who shared revealed truth from God with the world around him. So he's adopted that because of God's specific call on his life. Why does he use that title? Is it a, a source or opportunity for him to brag? Is he like, yeah, look at me, I'm an apostle. No, it's not bragging rights, but instead he's not flaunting credentials. Instead, he's establishing credibility and authority for the message that he's about to share in this book. Because it was necessary, the message he's about to share is very corrective in nature. So it has to be established as an authority. It mentions also just there at the end, Sosthenes, which we don't know a ton about other than he was a faithful traveling companion of Paul. So we have clear right out of the gates who's the author. Then it moves to who he's writing to in verse two. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. All right, well, we'll begin with a little bit of clarifying here. It tells us whose church we're dealing with. The church of God. I think that's a one you can sneak by and not realize because we can get uh, into the kind of thinking who's, oh, this is the church of this pastor. This is the church of this person. Oh, that's so-and-so's the music director there. Here's the reminder. It's an important reminder. None of us, we're all just stewards of the church. The church is owned and directed by God. It's funny, uh, my wife was talking with a newer family to our church and the daughter has been coming around to some different programs that we have here. And she was at home and was talking about uh, Adrian and referred to her. She's like, oh yeah, Adrian, you know, the owner of the church. It's kind of some time for correction, uh, although maybe you could make that argument here. (laughs) But uh, they made some correction. You're like, no, this is not somebody that owns the church. God is the one that's in leadership here. You can see later on in our chapters to come that it was a real tension point as to who they were celebrating rather than Jesus Christ as the leader. We're just passing through. We're all very replaceable. This particular church of God is found in the city of Corinth. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. I think some important details there. First off, it was a major port city. So kind of a a center of economic uh, prosperity, kind of, you you can actually see here on a map, you get a sense of what it actually uh, looks like close to present day Italy, close to present day Greece, kind of a, a port area where lots of ships had to pass through in order to get from one section to the next. And obviously an easy point of access for commerce. And so it was a destination city many people came to uh, that were involved in any type of business. 
But it wasn't just a destination city because of business. It was also known for some other not so positive things. A playwright, playwright by the name of Aristophanes coined the term Corinthia Zesti. Corinthia Zesti, which means fornication. So the word for Corinth was synonymous with uh, fornification. It's kind of interesting if you're familiar with the red hot chili peppers, what do they call California? Californication. So we have some similarities in that, some things that we're equally known for. Why were they known for that? Probably the biggest reason is because each, although many of these cities had a variety of different gods that they served and worshiped, each city would have what you'd call kind of a patron or main god of that area. And their patron god was a name you're probably familiar with, a god by the name of Aphrodite, who had her own massive temple there in Corinth. And it's said, said in history books, it said that that temple, one temple there had over a thousand prostitutes connected with the temple. So, I mean, it was a, a complete free-for-all. So uh, ship captains that are coming through, they had very specific reasons that they wanted to, unfortunately, stop in Corinth. In addition to their sexual lust, they also were known for their lust for violence. History tells us that the very first Greek gladiator games took place in Corinth. So Paul recognized right away as he's thinking through, where do we need God's hand at work? He was the first missionary to say, we need to get into Corinth and make a difference, have a, an influence. And it's kind of cool. You can uh, read the origin story back in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. It tells when Paul actually arrives there as a missionary and gives an account of how this initial church plant started. It's kind of fun to see how really every single church that you can think of, almost always their story is a, started as a, a person showing up in the town with the intention of planting a church that church plant usually starts in a meeting in someone's home. It's fun this last week, I was reading a little bit back and going back with uh, Ron Brookman, who's uh, faithfully still serves uh, behind the scenes here with our website and, and uh, production of all of this stuff. And, and just talking with him and looking at the history of the church, the church, uh, Agora, it, was a, it wasn't originally Agora Bible Fellowship. It was Agora, uh, it was called Agora Baptist Church. It was founded in 1967 by a pastor by the name of Pastor Harry Gay, who first started a meeting in someone's home in this area, and then he moved to ultimately in 1968 to meeting in Agora High School. So we used to have a presence there in Agora High School. After that, a few years meeting down at the park here down the street from us. And so that was the history of this church. Eventually in 1974, when I was one year old, that's when they had their very first service in this room that we're currently in. It's kind of cool to see. I was reading some paperwork on it. They bought this whole campus, all the land here. All the land here was purchased for $71,000. Oh, if I could turn back the clock. But here's the, the cool thing is every single church has a church plant story attached to it. Of the 380,000 evangelical churches in the United States, every single one of them has a church plant story. And the church plant story for Corinth was Paul showing up and saying, man, this place desperately needs rescue. 
He started with a small group of people that eventually expanded. He spent what we're told about a year and a half in Corinth, investing in the people there, pouring into them, getting them trained up. And then eventually he parted ways to go on and start and plant another church. He kept on moving. Well, see what happened in his absence is unfortunately the, the church in Corinth, the church of God in Corinth started heading back to some of their roots. The, too, too much of the city of Corinth started sneaking its way into their life. And so this is, in fact, a red letter that's written by Paul after hearing some negative reports of what's going on. Man, this church is completely derailing. And so really, in the summary of this letter, it's basically a bunch of kind of short essays on topics that need to be addressed for this group of people that unfortunately has wandered from their first love. It's interesting when you consider the different things that he discusses in this letter. He talks about division in the church. He talks about sex and immorality sneaking into the church. He talks about divorce. He talks about Christian liberty being taken advantage of. He talks about a lot of things that I would say you can still point to as very relevant today. So after addressing each problem, it's interesting you start to notice a pattern in Paul's response to him. He keeps on pointing them back to the gospel as the one hope for the rescue. Every single time he wants them to see that the gospel is really our only hope. And you even see this in the original intro right here out of the gates. How do you see the gospel? You see the gospel by the title in which he gives these people, these church uh, people involved in the church there, he keeps calling them and referring to them as saints. As far as they've strayed, as far as they've wandered, the title has not changed. It's interesting if you do an overview of Paul's writings, over 60 different times he refers to believers as saints. What is a saint? A saint is someone that's set apart, somebody that's holy, somebody that's been made completely new and clean in Jesus Christ. It's interesting to think that that title is still relevant for us today, still seen from God Almighty as a saint. It's not just the saint of this Augustus. It's not just the saint of what I was, St. Paul, St. John, St. Jude, all of these saints that we love to celebrate. But in scripture, if you're being biblical, Anyone who's embraced the finished work of Jesus Christ is considered a saint. So the most obscure believer today is just as much a saint as Paul was back then. It's interesting to think that even somebody that's immoral and unfaithful, that doesn't change their position in Jesus Christ. If they've truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus, they're considered and seen as a saint. If you think about it, there's a big difference often between our position and practice. How often we hear on both sides of the aisle with different presidents where you say, well, uh, their behavior isn't very presidential. Oh, regardless of their behavior being presidential or not, you're like, yeah, but they're still the president. That doesn't change the, the title and position. And similar for those who are in Christ, you're like, yes. They're not acting very Christ-like, but it doesn't change their position as a saint. 
It's interesting why we're constantly, if you think about it, trying to get the, uh, uh, some kind of symmetry between what our identity is and what our behavior looks like. We're trying to get those to come together to find a merger so, there's some, some, so we're not hypocrites, so there's consistency between the two. But Paul's starting by reminding them about their identity first because so often that's where it begins. When you realize, man, I'm a child of God. I'm a saint. You're like, man, I want to align what my behavior to be consistent with my identity. You think about why is that such a difficult thing? If you think about it, it's so hard to do that. Why is it so hard to do that? Because man, there is such a tug. Let's be honest here. There's such a tug from the flesh to go back to living in your old ways, all of the pre-Christ things. Not to mention such a tug from the culture, not to mention it's so hard to go the opposite direction of everybody else. All of these things demand that, man, we have to, and here's the key word here in that description of who's being called. He says, called to be saints together. We were never intended to try to do this on our own because if you're just out there floating by yourself, you are so vulnerable. We're intended instead to be a group that is moving in a particular direction together. That's why we've called this series Better Together because that's really the whole idea. When we're moving in the same direction, man, it is a lot easier. I've always longed for the day, I'll be honest with you, that Agora Bible Fellowship, every single person that calls ABF their home, what if on a given Sunday, what if on a given, uh, any given week, everybody that calls this home and is kind of connected even on the peripherals, what if everybody actually started coming together, like legit, like met on Sunday mornings, 9, 10, 45, and said, man, we're gonna be committed to being together. We're gonna be committed to worshiping the Lord together. We're gonna be uh, committed to figure out what our gifts are and how to use them. We're gonna be committed to figure out how we can use our resources to make an impact in the community. We're gonna be committed to figure out how we can hold each other accountable to keep growing, to find consistency between our claim beliefs and our, our behavior. Man, what would that look like? That's what Paul is inviting them to recognizing. He says, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're not lone rangers in this. It's so good. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. I got to go to this Maverick City Music uh, concert down at the Crypto Arena. I still call it Staples Center. But just being there in that massive room and seeing it packed with other followers of Jesus Christ, it's so much easier to move with the tide when you're doing it with a group. Doing it together is the intention that he starts with out of the gate, even in this introduction. Then he transitions to his prayer for them in verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you spend any amount of time in the New Testament, you see that's a repeated uh, blessing that somebody or greeting that somebody gives you. They're, they're always praying for grace and peace. I've talked about this before, but it's interesting to see that you never see those flip-flopped because you can never get to the peace part without first experiencing the grace part of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace was necessary. Unmerited favor was necessary in order for us to experience peace. Peace with what? 
peace with our God. You see, our sin creates enmity with God, whether we recognize it or not. And so there's no hope for us ever to experience true peace unless you recognize, man, I first need to experience the grace of Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor of what he's done on the cross. I need to cling to that. And then on the other side of that, man, you can experience true and genuine peace in your life. I'm not just talking about like this feeling of passing feeling of, oh, I feel kind of peaceful right now. I mean, something that goes to your core that you recognize, man, I just feel completely alive. I feel like there's nothing between me and my God. I feel completely forgiven. I'm not weighed down by guilt. I'm not weighed down by shame. I'm no longer fearful. There's a lot of things that can't coexist with with grace. And some of those are are guilt and shame and fears. Those just can't coincide. So my hope and my prayer is the exact same for you as Paul prays for this group of Corinthians, that you would experience both that you would tap into that, the grace and peace that he offers. So often we're surrounded with things that you're like, man, I have this thing that I know is awesome, but I don't really get to experience all that it offers. Anybody feel like that every time you open your cell phone? You're like, I'm pretty confident this thing can do like 8,000 more things that I'm able to do, but I just stick with a few basic things and stay kind of within my own territory. Man, this is the invitation to, to move into new areas that you're not currently experiencing. Remember not that long ago, somebody showed me that here's a silly uh, iPhone hack for you, that the space bar, if you put your finger on the space bar when you're writing something, typing something out, it becomes a movable cursor for your, your cursor. I'm just like, when I figured that out, I was just like, my life has changed. I think there's something in that with a follower of Jesus Christ. When they realize that the grace that's at their disposal, they no longer need to live in this like, oh man, I'm disappointing God again. He's seeing me with a big club. He's angry again. Oh man, how can I ever experience peace when I have all of this shame and guilt? That's the thing is you're belittling the grace that's offered through Jesus Christ. You're saying, well, his grace was enough to cover most things, but not that thing. We're belittling it. But the truth is, as Paul prays for them, we're intended to experience all the grace, all the peace that Jesus Christ offers. So his prayer for them, he continues in verse four, get to hear a little bit of his thoughts about them. Says something strange here, I'll explain in a minute. Says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has given you in Christ Jesus. Then every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. First off, it's interesting how he chooses to start this greeting to them. First, he prays a prayer of blessing for them. Then he tells them something that it would almost seem like he's being a little bit dishonest unless you actually dug in and saw the heart of Paul. He tells them, I'm thankful for you. 
It's strange because you would think that Paul would say, man, I am so annoyed with you. Man, I laid this foundation. I spent a year and a half discipling you, investing in you, and you've completely abandoned that. You've completely wandered from that. But you see, Paul, as he describes himself as the chief of all sinners, understood that grace is the salve that allows all of this to work. He's like, he's like, man, I'm so thankful for you because of the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ allows us to continue to function even in our failings. It's interesting to think about. That's the, the thing that allows really every single relationship that you're in to work. Your family relationships, your stuff with your kids, your, your friendships, your work relationships. Otherwise, all of those things is kind of like a car without motor oil in it. Otherwise, man, there's this, just this grind and this rub that goes on and you're just like the tension that builds up, the friction that's there. But grace just allows it to flow and to work because there's this unmerited forgiveness that's been extended to you. That's why even when I'm sure he was annoyed with them, he's saying, I am always thankful for you because of grace. What grace says is Jesus's final words. It is finished. There's nothing more you have to do to earn. There's nothing more you have to do to accomplish. We are living under the umbrella of grace and it can't be repaid and it can't coexist with guilt. Another church, I was reading their, their series in 1 Corinthians. They actually, I gave this message, this title. They actually called their entire series, Good News for Bad Christians. I was thinking about that. I was like, that's such a great title for us because really grace is the good news for bad Christians. If you think about it, as John MacArthur points out uh, the statement, he says, uh, he says uh, he, his will is concurrent with his enablement. So basically what he's given to us is plenty for what is needed for us to do all the things that we're called to. His will is in partnership with what he's enabled us to do. And he describes them very clearly with a number of different things, past, present, and future. First in the past, he describes us as forgiven, enriched in every way, in the testimony confirmed. Basically in him, we're given the whole enchilada. We haven't missed anything. We're enriched in all speech and knowledge. A lot of times you hear somebody say, well, I don't really feel confident in my faith because I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the knowledge. Basically this idea shatters that one. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've been given all of the knowledge that is needed and given all of this appropriate speech to be able to proclaim him to anyone that crosses your path. What the issue is, is a lack of willingness to open our mouth. You think about it. Sometimes people are like, oh, I, I don't know enough information. Really? You know plenty of information. You know that you are headed to a Christless eternity and God drug you out of the mire of your sin and redirected you because of what he did on the cross. You're like, man, you could communicate that to anyone if you actually stopped and thought about it. You've been entrusted with plenty of information. You've been given everything that you need to have an influence and impact. Again, his will is concurrent with his enablement in your life. 
So the past, you're forgiven, you're enriched, he's given, there's no excuse. Then the present, he says, not lacking in any gifts. So this stuff has happened, and now you're not lacking in any gifts. What is it talking about in scripture when it talks about gifts? So a lot of times we associate gifts as like something that was given to us that we enjoy. You unwrap a pair of new shoes at Christmas or whatever it might be, a new video game as a teenager. But here, the idea of a gift in scripture is a divine ability to accomplish something for God's will, a divine ability that he's entrusted you with. We're gonna talk about that more later as we work through the book of 1 Corinthians. It spends a good amount of time camping on what these spiritual gifts are, but every single one of us has been given gifts to work with, and we're told not to be ignorant of our gifts, to figure out, okay, God, how have you wired me up uniquely to make an impact on the world that in which you've placed me. So past, present, future. And this future part is so encouraging. It says that he will sustain you to the end as guiltless. Sustain you to the end as guiltless. Again, coming back to our title for today's message, good news for bad Christians. You're just like, man, I need somebody to sustain me to the end as guiltless. Because every single day I start going on detours and I try to get back on track. And then the next day I head on another detour and God's like, don't worry. My work on the cross is going to sustain you to the end as guiltless. You're going to be seen based on his resume, not on your resume. That is amazing news for those that hear these words that Jesus is returning, that they're talking about uh, his, his return and him coming back. The majority of the world should be terrified of this reality. And we're going to stand before the, the perfect judge based on our resume. We're in big trouble. But this coming of the Lord, his return, which is promised as a recurring theme throughout scripture, man, it's something if you are in Christ, we should be so thankful for, excited for. He's, he's covered us with his holiness. We're seen as guiltless, sustained to the end. This is good news for bad Christians that are still working out their behavior to align with their beliefs. Well, I'm thankful for even the start in this section of uh, 1 Corinthians. We have so much in store in the weeks to come. I'm really excited for how God's going to use this to shape us more into his likeness and to understand we are so much better when we're together. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather together and spend some time to study in your word, seeing how it speaks to us. I pray that there'd be something in this that someone would grab hold of that the Holy Spirit needed them to hear today. Maybe that's that initial question that I started with. What do I believe about this book? If it actually is the word of God, our creator, if God wrote a book, man, maybe it needs to be more of a priority in my day. Maybe it's the charge that we're better together. Maybe we need to lean into that more. We need to reevaluate priorities, how to make church a bigger deal where we're doing life together with other believers. It's so much easier when we're all headed in the same direction. How do we thank you for your grace, for your mercy? It's the only way in which we can stand. We're so dependent on that and very aware of our dependence on that. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We love you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks and have a great day.